0: Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Tonight our focus is going to be upon verses 27 through 34. So we're going to take a little time to look closely at this particular passage. The more that I go through Jeremiah 31, the more there is to, to look at. And I think that um, rather than overlook things, it's good to take a good long look at what God is saying in this passage. Let me read verses 27 through 30 first, and then we will begin. 27 through 30. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Father, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit tonight upon each and every person in this room tonight. That as we've come, Lord, to worship you and to praise you and to thank you for the wonders of this day, even if it doesn't seem like much happened that was filled with wonder the very fact that we have life and breath is the true wonder at all and that you Lord have brought us here tonight to speak to our hearts to instruct us in the ways of righteousness to teach us Lord of your plans and purposes Not only for the children of Israel, but for your children who love Jesus Christ and proclaim him as Lord and Savior. We are blessed to have this time to spend, Lord, in the power of your word. Grant us, Lord, that wisdom and strength tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. One good rule in Bible study, and one that I try to encourage always, is to read a passage and count the number of times a certain word or phrase is used. Repetition strengthens our understanding of what God is trying to say to us or to teach us concerning certain issues or certain events in the scriptures. So in the remaining verses of chapter 27, there is one significant phrase that we need to take note of, and, and that is the phrase, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now we see that in verse 27, and verse 31, and verse 38. We'll get to those others here shortly. One other phrase of prophetic importance is, is the simple phrase, Thus says the Lord, verse 35 and verse 37. These are are things that we we need to take note of. Because together these phrases awaken us to the climax of God's plans and purposes for the United Nation of Israel as He offers to them a new covenant as key to the book of consolation. If you remember back when we started chapter 30, we said uh, chapters 30 through 33, is what most, most people call the book of consolation, the book of comfort, coming to a nation that has received the, the very notice of judgment from God, by God, to a people that is that, that were rebellious against their God and their King. And so, these phrases, Behold the days are coming have a tremendous importance not only to what was coming to Israel in a short term but most importantly what comes to Israel in the long term for we know that as we've been studying through the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah even from the beginning of the book of Isaiah to where we are today in Jeremiah and that's over 90 chapters worth of study that there is a, a short term fulfillment of prophecy and there is always a long view of prophecy which is the far view of the, of the prophetic fulfillment. So for Israel, while they had returned to the land, nonetheless after so many hundred years, uh, they were scattered out of Israel and into the nations of the world. But yet the promises continue to come up that they're going to be back in the land once again, in a greater way, and especially at the time when their Messiah will come to rescue them from the nations of the world. So this is what is important about our understanding of these phrases. So, as with any grand proclamation, because this is a grand proclamation that we're seeing begin especially in verse 31. But as as with any grand proclamation that is being given, there precedes the new covenant here, a preamble. There is a preamble to the new covenant. Now the Oxford American Dictionary defines a preamble as a preliminary statement, the introductory part of a document or law, etc., etc., etc. So most of us should be familiar then with the preamble to the Declaration of Independence when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. That's the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. Or we should be familiar with the preamble to the Constitution. Of the United States. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. A preamble, an introductory statement before a grand proclamation. And as we are to have a basic understanding not only of the words and the intent of the framers of the preambles of our Declaration and Constitution, we are, also, uh, we are to also have an understanding of the meat of those full documents. So it isn't just a preamble to the Declaration of Constitution. We need to understand what the Declaration of Independence means and the Constitution. In those same lines, along the same line. The children of Israel were to pay close attention to the preamble as well as to the terms of the new covenant that the Lord was making with his people. And this was not only going to be their constitution as it were, but their declaration of dependence. Their declaration of dependence in their God, their declaration of dependence in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Israel. So let's first look at the preamble to the new covenant. Verse 27. Behold the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. In other words, again we see an agricultural picture given to us of, of someone sowing seed. But here it is that God is going to sow the house of Israel and Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Well, the land had been desolate for how many years? It would have been desolate for 70 years at least at that point in time. And then it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth, shall be set on edge. The preamble to the new covenant. A nation, you see, a nation is more than its land and its cities. A nation is always more than its land and its cities. It is people living together, working together, and for Israel especially, it is worshipping together many, many years, the nations of Israel and Judah, a separated nation, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, many times fought against each other. The southern kingdom would have good kings and bad kings, the northern kingdom only bad kings. It was a separation that came due to the sin of its leadership from David through Solomon and then into Rehoboam and so on and so forth. But things were going to be different now. God was making a preamble to a new covenant. And a new covenant along with that preamble. So Lord God of Israel is vowing now to, prov- to provide a new beginning to the house of Israel. His covenant people. But not to separate kingdoms, but to one kingdom. His kingdom. To appreciate the good news of this fresh start. Because that is what it is. It is a fresh start. How many times, and think about this in your own life, you don't have to kind of, you know I mean, just kind of think about this. There are times in our lives that we go astray. There are times when we take our eyes off the Lord. There are times when we go in, in, into areas that we know we ought not to be. But we go in there, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we just, we get dry, we get stale, we get, uh, uh, we, we get just messed up. No other, no other way to put it. Just messed up. Until the Lord, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, speaks to our hearts, gets us to see our sin. And then we confess our sins. And God, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, does so, forgives us. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a moment that we say, Lord, thank you for this fresh start. And we've all had a fresh start at times, haven't we? I don't think there's anybody here that hasn't had a fresh start. But, Understand this, if we stay with the Lord, it's always a fresh day, new day. Every day is a new day with the Lord. So, you know, it's, it's not like you've got to go down so you can just get up. You know, The Lord would rather you not do that. The point I'm trying to make is that there is a fresh start. So, to appreciate the good news of this fresh start for Israel, we probably need to remember the strange and the ghostly picture of a deserted landscape and God's opening call to Jeremiah. Think first of the opening call that God gives to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, verse 10, going all the way back to the first chapter. See, I have set this day, or I see, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Sounds very similar to what we just finished reading in verses 27 and 28. But you see, he was calling Jeremiah to be his mouthpiece. In effect, it was God's heart that was, that was being exhibited in the person of Jeremiah as he was giving forth the prophecies. And then in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, here's where we see that picture of a, of a deserted landscape. I beheld the earth, it says. And indeed it was without form and void. Where do we hear that, that statement made? We hear it in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. Before God begins to take that raw material that He spoke into existence and begins to shape it and place stars and and, and suns and, and moon and everything else into its position, the earth was without form and void. So here it says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all the cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. So we're not talking about the, the day of creation. We are talking about a land that became desolate when God's people forsook Him. And then it says, And all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end. Boy, I tell you, those are good words. Yet I will not make a full end. You see, that's the mercy of God. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God for His people. For this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken, I have purposed and will not relent nor will I turn back from it. I'm going to judge my people. And eventually I'm going to judge all the earth and all that has been created. But now see, what we have to understand is that the site is cleared and the land is waiting. It is desolate. What is it waiting for? It's waiting for God's promise that He will not make a full end. And of course, it is the restoration of the people and the restoration of the land. So the site is cleared. The land is waiting. God has vowed to restore and to reunite Israel and Judah into one great nation. He vowed to multiply both man and cattle. What did He do? He would sow the seed of man and cattle. In other words, He would cause it to multiply. You don't scatter a lot of seed just to get one tree or one bush or one plant or one vine. And so it was to multiply both man and cattle. And even though he would judge Judah for her sin, he vows to reverse that judgment. And this is so important for us to remember about the heart and mercy and grace of God. He vows to reverse that judgment. He says, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict. He says, I have been there. I have seen. I have directed. I have made this possible. So then, I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And then there would be no more blaming the fathers, you see. The people were good at excuses. And I can tell you this, that hasn't changed in 6,000 years. People are good at making excuses. If they offered doctorate degrees in making excuses, there would be many people who we would call doctors today. But the children of Israel were some of the best. As a whole. They would blame their fathers. Look at verses 29 and 30 of Jeremiah 31. In those days they shall say no more. In other words, this isn't going to happen anymore. They shall say no more. The fathers have eaten, all, they have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, we are the way we are because of what our fathers did. Now, they were misinterpreting what God had said to Moses when He gave him the law. What God had said to Moses... When he was teaching them the law. A few times it talks about, you know, the sins of the fathers on the children. You've heard that expression. That was misinterpreted by the children of Israel. Saying that while we're only the way we are because of something else. We're only the way we are because of our fathers' sins. They sin, therefore it's spread on us. So, it's their fault. Go back to the garden. What was the thing that was happening? First Eve gets confronted by the serpent. The serpent says, did God really say that you can't eat from this tree? And of course we know what happens. Then Adam comes along and you know they, they, they eat of the tree that God told them not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens when God comes and looks for them? Of course he already always knew where they were. God comes around in the cool of the day, as it says in the scriptures. And he says, where are you Adam? And Adam and Eve are hiding. Why are you hiding Why we're naked? Well, who told you you were naked, you see? They'd eaten of the tree. And Adam's first thing is, he says, this woman you gave me. That's where we learn how to be so good at excuses. Passing the buck. This woman you gave me. God turns to Eve and she says, the serpent. Where was it going to go after that, you see? So we get the picture here. No more shall you say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, that, your, your teeth aren't set on edge because of what they did. Your teeth are set on edge because of what you did. That work that God was doing for the nation of Israel would also silence a proverb that was common in Jeremiah's day and uttered by Ezekiel as a parable around the same time frame. Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah were, were contemporaries. And Ezekiel in eight, chapter 18, verses 1-4, through four. just so you'll see the parable, uh, or should say the proverb and the parable, it says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, and this is Ezekiel 18, one, uh, verse 2 now, What do you mean when you say this When you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul, whether father or son, the soul who sins, shall die. No excuses. You see, this is what we need to remember about the deadliness of sin this is what we need to remember about the destructiveness of sin this is what we need to remember about the dangers of sin we can't blame it on anyone else So blind to their own sins they attributed their misfortunes to the Lord's anger because of the evil doings of their fathers but as, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel testified their own sins that brought them about uh, or brought about this judgment that was coming upon them and again the soul that sinneth it shall die people today need to understand that they cannot blame their sins on their parents they cannot blame their sins on anything but if they do that which offends God then it's And you're responsible for it. God's Word teaches that everyone is responsible for their own actions and their own sins before God. The Apostle Paul would certainly make reference to this truth in his writings. If you go to Galatians chapter 6 and look at verses 3 through 10, I know it's a long passage, but, but notice a couple of things that are being said there. And I read this whole passage because I want you to see the context of what Paul is saying but he says for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing he deceives himself that would be called hypocrisy of course He says but let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone not in another but notice verse 5 notice this for each one shall bear his own load you have to bear your own load here you can't put your sins on anybody else Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now listen. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Each individual person. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you, sow to the world, if you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Each person. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The encouragement is, don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all. Especially those who are of the household of faith. We can either get caught up in our sin and just kind of stay in that particular thing and and try to blame it on somebody else. Or we can deal with it, bring it to the Lord, get right with God, and then go do what God's called you to do from the beginning. Do good. And do not be weary in doing good. We are the extensions of God's love and grace in this world. As we said, that's part of our stewardship. So the people were somewhat reintroduced then To the concept of individual responsibility as though it had been scarcely known before. But what is given in our text is a farewell to defeatism and to excuses. It is a farewell to defeatism. Oh, we're just the way we are because of something else. Or the excuses. I'm the way I am because of them, not because of anything I've done. So, every person counts and will be held accountable. Remember that. Every person counts and will be held accountable. The past is now going to be dealt with, and the future is beckoning for the nation of Israel. But this had to be stated. This had to be the preliminary, the preamble, you see, to what was to come. Because there is better news to be unfolded now in the grand announcement that follows in verse 31. let's look at verse 31. Second time we see the phrase, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now folks, that is really significant here, but I'll explain in just a moment. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, So we're beginning to understand which covenant that was. That would be the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying... Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So now, here's the first article of the new covenant. Now, it is of extreme importance. I mentioned verse 31 there's something very significant here verse 31 it is of extreme importance that we not miss a major point in these verses especially in verse 31 when the Lord says that he would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah this is speaking primarily and directly to a literal Israel please understand it to a literal Israel He's not speaking this to a spiritual Israel. He's speaking to a literal Israel and a literal Judah, not with a spiritual Israel, i.e. the church. But understand this, that the church is a secondary recipient. The church is a secondary recipient of these promises in that we have been grafted on the stock of Israel. Please understand that. But the important thing is that primarily this particular prophecy and promise is to a literal Israel and a literal Judah. I make a new covenant with my chosen people, Israel and Judah. When has the church ever been called Israel and Judah? Most of the time the church doesn't want to be called Judah. Why? Because when we think of Judah, we think of a sneaky thief. Which was the father Jacob, not Israel. Israel being, of course, what God renamed Jacob to be. So think here. When I say Israel and Judah, you know, we're talking about one nation. But we have to remember the stock that we are upon. So let me let me give you that real quickly, so you don't. Uh, So I don't forget, Romans 11, verses (coughs) 16-20. Again, this is only so you'll understand that the primary prophecy is to a literal Israel. For if the first fruit is holy, Paul says, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, speaking of the Roman Gentile church, were grafted in among them and and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will then say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. But then, Paul gives the warning... Do not be haughty, overconfident, arrogant, but fear. We should have a heart of fear to be connected to the stock of Israel. But the prophecies themselves are for Israel first, foremost, primary. So remember that. That verse, verse 31, is so important. When God says that, he is not disregarding Israel. as Some people in the church today are saying, you know, well, Israel has been forsaken by God, and now uh, uh, God has raised up uh, the church uh, to be the new spiritual Israel. Well, no, we we have been grafted in to the promises, but they're still, first and foremost, the recipients of God's promises. So remember that. God says, I'm not going to make a full end of their destruction. Why did he say that? Because he's going to deal with Israel again, his people. You know, I I want to address it. I know that, you know, here again, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know that I teach this all the time. So, but, hey, we've got to make sure we've got got it clear in our hearts. So the whole subject of chapters 31 and, and 30, 30 and 31 of Jeremiah, is the restoration of the Jewish people. That's what chapters 30 and 31 are all about. The restoration of Israel. The restoration of the Jewish people. The restoration of the Hebrews. Jeremiah 30 verse 4. Go back there for just a moment. One page or so back. It says, Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Again, God never speaks that way about the church. He's speaking directly to His people. Jeremiah 30 verse 7. We've talked about this being the the beginning of the understanding of the tribulation period. Which is yet to come. He says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. And there's the mention of Jacob. I was talking about Jacob earlier. Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 10. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. All of that is dealing with what? With literal Israel and Judah. And again, you never see where God calls the church Jacob. That was the point I was trying to make earlier. I just got a little ahead of myself. But Israel and Judah to be separated, though, you know, God's never directed anything to the church in that particular manner. So the new covenant that would not be like the one God made with Israel's forefathers at the time of the Exodus, because the, that covenant had been broken by the people. See, when you think of the Mosaic covenant, if you do this, 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 and this, what does it say? That, that's a conditional uh, covenant is in a sense. If you do this, this, and this, I'll bless you. If you don't do these things, I will bring curse upon you. So it was a conditional covenant. Based on what? Based on the faithfulness of God's... Uh, based on the faith, faithfulness of people. Based on the faithful, faithfulness of Israel. But the fact of the matter is, they couldn't be faithful. See, so only God can be faithful. And, and so, when we consider the new covenant now... It would not be like that one made with Israel's forefathers at the time of the Exodus. Look at verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So that earlier covenant was the Mosaic covenant which is found in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In fact, earlier in Jeremiah... Earlier in Jeremiah that covenant is referred to. Go back to chapter 11. Go back to chapter 11. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, "Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice, and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. And I answered and said, So be it, Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they... Have not done. So, even back as, as early as Jeremiah 11, God was dealing with the Mosaic covenant that the people were commanded to keep, but they didn't keep. The Lord had twice announced a series of punishments or curses that would be brought into play on those who violated the law those would be found in leviticus 26 and deuteronomy 28 as a matter of fact if you've been in our study of jeremiah for any length of time we have touched upon uh you know cross-referencing a lot of stuff in deuteronomy 28 and the book of deuteronomy in general but there's a lot of cross-referencing that has gone on between jeremiah and and deuteronomy why because deuteronomy has all the blessings and the curses And the curses have to be brought up in remembrance. Why? Because the people were being disobedient. They were being rebellious against God. So twice these series of punishments and curses would be brought into play. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Now, the final judgment... would be the physical deportation of the people from the land of Israel. Because with the destruction in 586 BC of Jerusalem the final curse was completed. Well, at least up to that point. But, of the, but of, the, of the curses given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But I want you to notice, if you will, that with the promise given at the end of judgment, there is something else that we need to see. Let's look at Leviticus 26, and in verses 43 through 45. You know, I've, I've uh, brought up a lot of cross-referencing here tonight, and it just happens to be that all every one of these verses have, has a lot of words in it, you know. So it's probably, yeah, see, I'm all trying to cram in. The verses are big verses here. It says in verse 43, The land also shall be left empty by them, and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies des- desolate without them. Where are they? They are in captivity. They are in exile. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. So they will have that remorse in their hearts for what they did. They will repent. And yet for all that, notice this, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Do you all see that? I will not cast them away nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God but for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought up out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God I am the Lord here's the great thing God always keeps his side of the covenant God always keeps his promises. God is always faithful to keep every promise he ever makes. Now, God has also set a holy standard of conduct before the people. But because of their sinful hearts, they could not keep those standards. And so a change was necessary. A change was necessary. Not in God. Not in his word, not in his ways, a change was needed in the hearts of his people. So in verse 33 now, it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. That's a great phrase too, because that's something seen throughout all of the Old Testament. After those days. And you see it also in the book of Revelation too, or at least something similar to it. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's different about that and the previous covenant or at least the Mosaic covenant? The Mosaic covenant was written on stone with the finger of God. But God says this new covenant I'm going to put it in your minds and I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. It seems that the world desperately seeks to develop just the right plan for the betterment of human society while ignoring its most important problem. The most important problem that the world has, and we had it too, is the dilemma of sin. Think about it. If you if you study all of history, if you study all of what man has done outside of what... We know God has done and what God has emphasized in the hearts of many people but just think of certain nations that want to destroy other nations and because they just want to take over all the world. The problem is sin from the fall. You follow that sin from the time that Adam and Eve fell. And you go through all of what happens in the book of Genesis. And you know, you see what God has to do with Noah. And then you see what the Lord has to do with with Abraham. And and then with Abraham and Lot. And then, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. But sin, 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 man. Some thinking, you know, well, you know. Man is basically good. Have you ever heard that? Man is basically good. Man is basically a good creature. I've heard that a lot. That's a lie. Because the Bible says, there is none that is good. There are none that are good. No, not one. There's not one that's good. We were all born in sin. And so there is a sin problem, a sin dilemma. And any plan that ignores the sin problem is destined to fail. Any plan that ignores the problem of sin is destined to fail. And it isn't enough just to change the environment or political administrations. It isn't enough. It isn't enough to make promises of hope and change while disregarding the God of creation and His righteous law. That isn't enough. Because you see, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of every problem is the problem of the heart, the human heart. It is God who must change the hearts of people so that they want to love Him and do His will. That's why he proclaims a new covenant to replace the old covenant. A covenant that could direct their, uh, the old covenant was a covenant that could direct their conduct, but not change their character. I mean, you could tell a person, listen, don't touch that stove, it's hot, and they want to touch it. That's ingrained in each and every one of us. Keep off the grass, what's the first thing you want to do? walk all over the grass you see a painted park bench and it says uh, don't sit down on it it's it's you know it's wet paint and you say who cares i want stripes on my clothes that's the heart of man isn't it from the very beginning Remember that even as Moses, listen, as Moses was, was, was up on the mountain receiving the law with God, what do we know? The people were what? They were already breaking it. They were already breaking the law as Moses is bringing the law down. We must understand that the law was never meant to make people righteous. If you take anything home with you, take that home with you. The law was never meant to make anyone righteous. The law was meant to show us that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. That is what the law purposes to do. You see in Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus, as He is having that supper, that Passover supper with His disciples, He says to them, for this is Is my blood of the new covenant. Which is shed for many. For the remission of sins. Now we're beginning to see. What the new covenant is all about. The law. Could direct. Conduct. But it could not change the heart. But Jesus says, my blood, the blood of the new covenant, is shed for the remission of sins. Shed for many. I hope that you all are one of the many that the blood of Jesus has been shed for. The new covenant was based, you see, on God's faithfulness. Not man's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. What a man must do is receive that free gift of life by faith. And that, of course, is where faith comes in. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The law continues to point us to the solution for our sin. Romans 6, verses 20-23, through 23, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord you've been set free from sin do you know where you were set free from sin on the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus cries out it is finished his blood shed for our sins paid the price his body and death Paid the price for our sin. In essence, He took our sin on that cross and covered it with His blood. So that when God looks at the sacrifice for you and me who have truly prayed to God for mercy. truly confess to God our sins for having offended Him when we have truly stated with our mouths and confessed with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believed in our hearts that He's risen from the dead we shall be saved it says Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verses 21 through 25 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. You see... All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. And therefore the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, The law was our schoolmaster, it says in the King James. Our tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. We're not justified by the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're now under grace, not under law. But don't let that be something that says, well, if we're not under law anymore, then I could do whatever I want. No, why? Because Jesus Christ died to fulfill the law for us. Which means that we now are set free to live our lives in holiness and in righteousness for the glory of God, our King. You all here? just want to make sure because I'm getting one of those man deer in the headlight things right now I want to make sure you guys are listening and understand what I'm saying when we receive Christ into our lives he gives us a new nature a new heart and his desire for us to, is to do his will now not out of the law but out of love James calls it the royal law of love. We don't do what we do because of the law. We do it out of love for God. As Paul said in Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This this one particular verse is so is so impressed on my heart that if we come truly to the love of Christ to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to the blood of Christ to the, the to the, to the benefits of what Christ has done for us if we come to him we will not ever be anything but new in Christ there, in other words what i'm trying to say is we're not a, we, we just aren't old christians we're always new christians why even though we can be mature christians That doesn't mean we're not new Christians. New in the sense that every day there's something new that God blesses us with. There's something new that we learn. There's something new that we want to do for the Lord. There's something new that sparks up in our hearts because we have a new life, a new nature, a new heart, a new desire, new everything if we keep that ever before us. And Christian, let me tell you right now, when you start saying that you're old, or when you start thinking, and and I'm speaking spiritually because all of us are getting a little old, you know, physically. But I'm talking spiritually. When you start acting like you're old, you're becoming stale. And nobody likes old, stale things. I don't like stale bread. You know, I I think I can handle day-old bread, but not stale bread. Listen, we need to be fresh every day. We need the newness of Christ every day. We need to pray every day as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your wisdom. Fill me with your strength. Give me understanding of your word. Let me live my life for the glory of Christ Jesus every single day and with every breath that I have. Every day. Not just whenever we come to church, whenever we feel like it, whenever we want to just say, well, you know, maybe I want to impress somebody. Be careful, that would be hypocrisy. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, the the point is always present, not past tense. Christians don't live in the past tense. We're to live in the present tense, looking to the coming of Jesus Christ. Nothing makes us newer than to know that Jesus is just around the corner. And to best understand verse 24 of our text, we need to look at Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law... And by the way, that's uh, verse 34 of our text. To best understand verse 34 of our text, we need to look at Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin by the law and that last phrase by the law is the knowledge of sin because under the new covenant this is what god promises let's look at 34 now under the new covenant this is what god promises no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the lord and here's the reason why for i will forgive their iniquity and their sin i will remember no more doesn't that just set you free when it comes to the issue of sin that if god has forgiven us of our iniquity and he remembers our sin no more aren't you just thankful I mean I am I I would not want to remember things even though from time to time in the flesh you know we remember a lot of things but I'd like to be like the Lord in that particular sense Lord I, I don't want to remember those anymore best way not to remember something is to be doing something that's right with God. Keeping our focus and attention on Him. Keeping our focus and attention on the things that God has truly called us to do and doing those things for the glory of God. So, first of all, the first phrase primarily is for Israel. And it's second, secondly for us. The first phrase of verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's primarily for Israel, but secondly, it's for us. Because notice in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Isaiah 54, verse 13. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. Now, if you apply that to us secondarily as Christians, in John 6.45, notice that Jesus will actually quote from these passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah. John 6.45, Jesus said, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so that's indicative then of, of, of the, the, the power of that particular thing. You shall no more teach anyone know the Lord. You're you're going to all know the Lord when you come to Christ. First Corinthians two verses nine and ten, Paul deals with it too. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We are going to know the things that we need to know from God. God doesn't keep really any secrets from us, does He? God, I mean, God has revealed His whole Word to us. I mean, get to the last book of the Bible, and it's called the book of Revelation. It is revealing, you see. Thank God that throughout, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, there's not a book anywhere that says the book of hidden secrets. Now it does say in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. But that which is revealed belonged to us. And he's revealed a lot. So don't ever consider that God has hidden anything from you. He wants us all to know him. First John two verses twenty through twenty three. By the way, he wants us to know him. He wants all of us to know him from the least to the greatest. Understand this: there are some religions, cults, whatever you want to call them, that say, "Well, you know, to, to become like us at a higher level, you need to begin down here and begin to unlock the secrets." There was something called the secret not long ago that was really important to people. You know what? That's heresy, and it's demonic. Because God says, I've revealed everything in my Son, Jesus Christ. So everyone can know Christ. 1 John 2, verses 20-23, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now that, don't go out saying, you know, God told me I know all things, so I'm going to know it all. No. What you know is what you need to know about God and about Christ. Notice what it goes on to say. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So don't go out lying, telling everybody you know everything. As if it's just out of you. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. That you know. But the basis for the new covenant, overall now, and we're coming to a conclusion here, the basis for the new covenant is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The basis for the new covenant is the work of Jesus on the cross. The second aspect now of the new covenant will be God's provision for sin. The sins of the people resulted in the curses of the Old Covenant. However, as part of the New Covenant, God will forgive Israel's wickedness and remember their sins no more. That is what he says at the end of verse 34. But how could a holy God overlook sin? Well, the answer is that God did not overlook sin because its penalty was paid for by a substitute. The penalty was paid for by a substitute. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. Who was? Israel? Because the Jews believe it's about Israel. No. Messiah. The Mashiach of Israel Jesus Christ he was esteemed stricken smitten by God afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed spiritually first and foremost all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I love Micah chapter 7 verses 18 and 19 that says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Aren't you thankful that God delights in mercy? He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. What a compassionate heart God has for us. Lastly, Psalm 103, verse 12. We sang a song about this on Sunday night. What a blessed time that was to worship the Lord together. As far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgression from us folks do you know that east and west never meet north and south kind of sort of meet but east and west never meet when you draw a line there's no east pole there's no west pole there is a north pole and a south pole But not an East Pole and a West Pole. What does that tell you? In God's heart and eyes, they never meet. All it does is remind us of what Christ did between one scarred hand and the other. It is an experience of regeneration Being born again into the family of God. That is the new covenant. And it is first to Israel. And then it is to all who believe in the God of Israel. Because you see in John chapter 1, verse 11. It says that Jesus came unto his own. And his own did not receive him. But to as many as receive him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. To the Jew first, Paul said, and also to the Gentile. And so we begin not only the preamble, but the first article of the grand proclamation of the new covenant. Shall we pray?